Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to resume our study. We have been pushing ahead. Uh, my goal right now is for us to be able to end uh, the Gospel of Mark on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, because that's actually where Mark's Gospel ends, is with the Resurrection account. So, if all works out accordingly, we're going to try to keep it on pace so that we end exactly on Easter, which will be a great uh, way to wrap up our study in Mark's Gospel. So, Mark chapter 12, uh, we ended last time in verse verse 12, Mark 12, 12, and so we're picking up this week in verse 13. So if you don't have a Bible, there are some extras on that back table if you want to follow along with us this morning. Uh, But let's go ahead and stand and we'll read Mark chapter 12, verses 13, all the way down through verse 27. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. He said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for, her, for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead but of the living, you are quite wrong. Go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. And we'll ask for God's favor as we study this this morning. Father, now we just ask that you would uh, help us. Help us to understand a passage that is in many ways tricky. Um, and it was designed that way for, for Jesus. It was meant to be a trick and uh, something that was meant to be hard for him to, to understand. We're thankful that Jesus proves to us and to his audience there that he is far uh, more wise and far more authoritative than we can even imagine. And that is a good thing for us this morning. And so I pray that you would help us to see that as we unpack uh, this story together. 
pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and honorable to you as we see the true and authoritative Jesus. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we just got through Christmas time. I don't know what type of gifts that you might have gotten for Christmas, but let me ask this. How many of you got some type of new uh, board game or like competitive game to play in your household? Yeah? What did you, okay, what, let me hear. What did you get? Lost Cities, like it, okay. What else? I, I know I saw some hands over here. You got a game? Yeah. We got the Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride, okay. I've never actually played that, but I've heard it's really, really fun. So what else? Any other games? I, heard, I saw some hands over here. Don't be shy. I want to know what games you play. I love games, so. Any over here? Wow, it's funny. There were so many hands that went up, and now nobody wants to admit what type of games they're playing here, so interesting. Well, the reason I ask that is because uh, even as an adult, I still love games, but as a kid, I, I really loved uh, different board games. And one of my favorite board games when I was a kid, and probably would still be one of my favorites if we still had this in our household now, uh, and I think every young boy can relate to this, uh, was the game Mousetrap. Anybody ever play Mousetrap before? Anybody still have Mousetrap in your house? Yeah? I love it, awesome. The funny thing about Mousetrap is, even though it's a game, I don't know that I ever can recall playing the game because it really wasn't about the game. Uh, if you're a young boy, it's all about setting up this giant contraption of uh, one giant trap where every single element has to go into its right and appropriate place uh, with the goal being that you can catch and trap uh, the mouse who sits underneath the trap. Um, and if anybody has ever played this game before and knows all the intricacies of setting it up and there's a lot of different parts to it and components and if you don't have everything in its appropriate place, what's going to happen? The trap's going to fail, right? It's not going to accomplish its purpose. Well, as I think about what we're going to look at here this morning in chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel, we learn that a, a trap has been set for Jesus uh, before Christmas break, we were learning about how Jesus here is entering into Jerusalem. This is the, the week of his, the final week of his life. He enters into Jerusalem. He, he cleanses the temple. He proclaims his authority. And he, in many ways, condemns the empty religious establishment. And here we find him in the final days of his life, setting up shop, setting up school in the temple, teaching people. Uh, and all the religious teachers are making last-ditch effort, efforts to eliminate him, right? They want Jesus done. They're doing everything at all costs to set a trap and get rid of Jesus. But just like those who fail to set up the trap the right way in Mousetrap, the, the reality is their, their efforts are feeble. They're vain. And like a mouse who is outsmarting uh, the trapper, we're going to see Jesus here being far wiser, far superior in wiggling his way out and not even just wiggling his way out, uh, showing himself to really be the one who's in control of things. So Jesus is going to show himself to be far too wise to be fooled by their attempts. This idea of being trapped here comes in verse 15. Notice in verse 15, Jesus says to him, he says, knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why do you put me to the test? 
And that word there that he uses for being put to the test is actually a word that's used several times by Mark throughout his gospel. But do you know the very first time that we see that word appear in the gospel? Who was trying to test him? Do you guys remember? The very first time that it was used, who was trying to test him? Huh? Satan. Satan. Yeah. Very first time, Satan is the one who's used that because he himself is trying to trip up and trap Jesus and his words. And I think it's interesting that Mark uses this here, and perhaps it's deliberate, because all these tests, all these traps that the religious leaders are setting are doing so. They're seeking to basically do the very same thing that Satan has attempted since the very start of this gospel. And really, we could even say the very beginning of human history which is to thwart the saving plans of God. If they can't get Jesus to, if they can get Jesus to slip up just once, they can have him arrested, put to death, thus ending his movement and from Satan's perspective, ending God's plan to rescue humanity. Just like he did with Satan in the wilderness, we will see that Jesus is more than able to resist such traps. In fact, What we really can see from this uh, account this morning is this, that all human attempts to trap Jesus prove foolish in light of his wisdom. All human attempts to trap Jesus prove foolish. They prove empty and vain in light of Jesus and his wisdom. This account is one big display of the wisdom of God triumphing over the foolishness of men. No matter how many times we think we can outsmart God or or prove that we're capable of doing things apart from him, Jesus is here to remind us who is really in charge and who really ultimately has the wisdom in the end, who knows even the hearts of men. So we're going to look at this story through that lens of Jesus trying to be trapped, and we're going to see uh, the two different types of traps that the religious leaders establish here for Jesus in the temple. So again, he's in the temple, he's in the heart of the religious culture right now in Jerusalem, and here we have the religious leaders seeking to trap him. And the first type of trap we see, we'll call it the, the taxation test, the, tax, the taxation test. So phase one, plan A for their trapping of Jesus is to dispatch the the Pharisees and the Herodians on Jesus. Uh, That is a strange tag team in that day. And you're like, I I don't really know anything about the the Pharisees and the Herodians, why that would be a weird thing. Well, let's, let's think about what we know about these two groups of people. So the Herodians... You know, we know a little bit about the Pharisees. We've talked about them a lot. We know that they're some type of religious leaders who are really smart and supposedly know their Bibles. But the Herodians are a group we don't know as much about. Uh, what we do know about them from history and even from what the, the Bible teaches is that they seem to be some type of like political group uh, with some degree of influence over the people. And their name, notice their name, looks like a person that you are familiar with, a guy by the name of Herod. That's why they're called the Herodians, right? They are supporters of the dynasty of King Herod. Uh, If you remember King Herod the Great, what was he famous for trying to do in Jesus' life? Trying to kill him when he was a baby, right? 
He didn't like the fact that there was uh, supposedly some other king of the Jews who was being born, and so he sat to try to eliminate him. Well, one of his sons uh, <clears throat> is Herod <coughs> Antipas, who is uh, currently ruling one of the regions here of Israel, uh, and we're going to see him later at the trial of Jesus. Uh, but these people were kind of very loyal to this uh, political party, this movement here, and they were very, what we would call... Uh, aristocratic. They were also pro-Roman because the Romans uh, really helped them to stay in power. They kind of did their bidding for them. And so if you know anything about the Pharisees, they're very anti-Roman. So you have a very anti-Roman group and a very pro-Roman group. And what are they doing in this story? They are coming together, united to try to trap Jesus. Again, incredibly odd. Incredibly odd. I mean, this, this makes no sense, this allegiance. It's like putting ketchup or mustard on your PB&J sandwich. And if you do that, that's quite odd, right? So, but what we know about history and what we even know about our own day and age today is that what unites two enemies more than anything else is a common enemy. Is a common enemy. And that's exactly what they get with Jesus. So their test here like their alliance, is a combination of their two worlds, uh, really pitting Jesus against the pro-Roman versus the pro-Jewish mindsets. According to verse 13, uh, it is designed in such a way to trap Jesus in his words, right? So they're like, okay, if we had to get Jesus in his actions, we're going to get Jesus with his words. We, if we can just get him to slip up with his tongue in just one Spot One little thing that could be misconstrued, we got him. We have all the pull, all the leverage we need to, to get rid of him. That word there for trap is actually, ironically enough, it's the same word that's used in the Bible to talk about trapping animals, right? So that's exactly what they have for Jesus here, right? This is their own version of mousetrap. They're going to set the trap for him to fall into. But how do they conceal this trap? Because, right, any, any good trapper knows that you can't just literally put a trap out there in the middle of the open and just expect somebody to walk into it. You have to conceal it, right? You have to, to veil it in such a way that it doesn't look like a trap. So how do they veil and cover up their trap in this text? Did you catch on to it? Something we like to call flattery. Flattery. Um... Perhaps you could say it this way. You, you probably use this of people in school. Um, this is that term, what we call being a, a suck-up in many ways, right? That's exactly what they are doing for Jesus here. Notice what they said in verse 14. Look, it says, They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are true. and You do not care about anyone's opinion. In other words, Jesus is a man of integrity. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Right, just dripping with all kinds of ooey-gooey praise for Jesus, right? Jesus, you're, you're, you're awesome. We see in you so much that's so commendable, so great. What are they doing here? We call this buttering somebody up, right? Because they think to themselves, oh man, if we can get Jesus to, to just let down his guard a little bit. Maybe then that's all we need for him to just slip up in his words, right? If we can just, 
flatter him enough and help him see, oh, we're actually totally for you. We, we see so much good that you're doing. Jesus is somehow going to just slip up and he's going to say something wrong. And I would say this account drips with irony in so many ways, and we're going to see some of that here, but we'll, we'll see some more later on. But notice here that <laughs> their insincere flattery of Jesus actually contains truthful statements, right? Which, when somebody's being sarcastic, that's usually, they're usually trying to say the opposite, right? Of what they're actually intending here. And so in their flattery of Jesus, notice what they're actually saying is true of him, right? Go back and look at it here, right? You, you, do, you are true. You do not care of anyone's opinion. That's not that Jesus doesn't care what people think. It's just that Jesus is a man of integrity. He's not swayed by appearances. He doesn't uh, give favoritism to one group or the other, right? Like all of these are actually very true statements about Jesus. And they're trying to use that against him as insincere flattery when the reality is it's true, but also the other ironic thing is that what was true of Jesus was totally not true of them, right? I mean, if there's anybody who cares about the opinions of others, it's the Pharisees. If there's anybody who uh, appeals to the masses and tries to earn favor with men, it's the Pharisees. So it's just ironic that they're using all this as a trap here. And we're going to see more of that here in a moment, but that's exactly uh, what's going on. So the question is, what, what exactly is the trap that they're setting for Jesus? What's, what are they trying to get him to do? And what it is, is really, it's a trick question. Trick questions have existed since the beginning of time, right? And that's exactly what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to trick him with a question that supposedly has no right answer. Supposedly no right answer, but only wrong answers. And so their, their, their question, their test question, is in verse 14 here at the very end. They say to him, after all this flattery, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Yes, even in Jesus' day, taxes were a hot-button issue, Right? You think that they're a hot-button issue today, they were in Jesus' day as well. The tax that they're referring to here is uh, like a poll tax that was imposed on them by Rome. So remember this. The people who are ruling over the Jewish people are not, it's not the nation of Israel, it's the empire of Rome. They are subject to a higher power in their country, which is the Roman Empire. And what do people hate more than anything? Getting taxed, not even by your own people, but by an authority that has overtaken your own country. Right? That's, that's insulting to them. That's, that's, that's hard. Nobody wants to submit and to pay that. This tax was typically what we would call a denarius, which you have maybe heard that term a lot uh, over the last several months. The denarius is just a simple silver coin that was worth about a day's wage at that time. This uh, coin here, we'll talk about it in just a moment. We'll, I'll show you a picture of it. But the, the trap uh, or the dilemma for Jesus here is, is this. What happens if, according to this question, if they say to Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay uh, this tax, or should we pay this tax? What happens if Jesus says yes? 
What happens if he says yes? Who's he making happy in that situation? Caesar. He's making the Romans happy. Who's he making unhappy by that statement? All the Jewish people, because none of them like Rome. And so if Jesus is like, yeah, you should submit and you should pay your taxes, he's going to be seen as pro-Roman and anti-Israel. That's not good. Okay, so let's go to the other side of the equation here. What happens if he says, no, don't pay that tax? Who's he making happy then? The Jews, right? Who's he making unhappy by that? Caesar. Yep, so what's going to happen the very moment he says, no, don't pay that tax? They're going to go off and tell the Roman authorities, hey, this dude's in the temple saying that we shouldn't pay you taxes. What are they going to do? They're going to come and arrest him. And so they're putting Jesus on what's called the horns of a dilemma here. He can't be right by either response that he gives, supposedly. But verse 15, I love this. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Jesus is not fooled by this trap. He even calls them out here. But then he does something interesting by asking for a denarius. He asks for a coin. And one of them provides Jesus the denarius, and he holds it up, and he examines it in their midst. And like a good rabbi, he answers their question with a question. And he asks them, whose name, whose image, whose inscription is this? Now, this coin would have looked something like this back in this day and age. So you have the front and the back side of it. The front side of this would have been the picture of the Caesar at the time, which would have been uh, Tiberius Caesar. And this inscription that was written around the outside of the coin would have said something like this, because obviously you can't read that language, so let me translate it for you. Would have essentially said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, meaning Caesar Augustus, right? The very first Caesar. That term Augustus uh, comes from the term August one, which means uh, one who is transcendent or one who is divine. In other words, the Roman people saw Caesar as almost a god, a divine figure in that day and age. So you can imagine this coin here kind of being almost this idolatrous image that they would have had at this time. And so Jesus holds it up. He tells them, listen, whose image is this? Whose picture, whose inscription is this? And they understand the answer. It's it's Caesar's. So Jesus, and well, if this is Caesar's coin, it's got his name on it, then you render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. This obviously belongs to him, so you give back to Caesar what belongs to him. But, at the same time, don't forget to give to God what belongs to him. Now, some of you are like, okay, so what does that mean? And that's a good question. We're going to talk about that at the end. We're going to see the significance of that statement at the end. But suffice it to say, they were stunned that Jesus found his way out of this trap. Verse 17 says they marveled at him. Because somehow... In a no-win answer, Jesus found a way to be triumphant. 
He found a way to not be trapped in his words. He says, listen, if it belongs to Caesar, give it back to Caesar. But if it belongs to God, then you give it back to God. And again, we'll talk about what that means here in a moment. So you have here the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, and they are leaving the situation now with their pride beaten and bruised, right? Because they have failed to trap Jesus. And they are kind of like this uh, wrestling tag team. If you guys ever watched wrestling back in the day, I'm not saying I did. Actually, I loved wrestling back in the day. You ever see like a tag team wrestling match and you know when one guy's getting beaten and bruised, what does he do? He tags the next guy up. Well, that's what we see happening here with the Pharisees. On their way out of the ring, tag, they tag the Sadducees. Sadducees are the next ones up in line. And this is where we now see the taxation tests give way to the resurrection riddle. The resurrection riddle in verses 18 to 21. Jesus trap, plan B, right? Now, first plan did not work. Okay, we'll, we'll redirect course. We're going to go plan B here. We bring in the Sadducees, who are another religious political party in conjunction with the Pharisees. If you want to talk about the two like big names, you talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were... And I don't want to draw unfair comparisons here, but they were kind of like your Democrats and Republicans of that day. I'm not saying they represent those same ideologies. I'm just saying if you thought about two political parties, Pharisees, Sadducees, very similar to what we experience in our day and age. But just like the situation with the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not agree on a lot of things. And there were two main ways that they did not agree that are going to come up in this story here. One is that they did not believe, the Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the supernatural. Verse 18, notice what it says there. Uh, Mark even gives us this clue. He says, and the Sadducees came to him, kind of parenthetical note here, you know, the ones who say that there is no resurrection. They believe that resurrection was an impossibility. People could not rise from the dead. So they were very anti-supernatural and they were also very uh, limited in what they believed about the Bible in terms of what constituted the true scriptures. If you were a Pharisee, you accepted what were like the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch. So those are the books of Moses from Genesis through Deuteronomy. But you also accepted the prophets and the writings, so the writings like the Psalms, the Proverbs, those things, the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, you accepted all of that. The Sadducees only accepted the first part of that. They only accepted the first five books of Moses, everything from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Everything outside of that, they said, nope, don't need it. So that will be significant as well, as we'll see here soon. But again, notice the irony of all these groups being united in their hatred against Jesus. So their trap, their one is meant to catch him in his words in a different way. It's a riddle meant to make Jesus look stupid. It's a riddle meant to make him look foolish. Because if they can prove the absurdity of the possibility of resurrection or pose a possible moral dilemma... They can make Jesus look incompetent to everyone else, right? And they're like, that's as good as anything at this point. If we can just make him look foolish in front of other people, that'll do. And they begin by establishing what was not debatable. 
What was not debatable, they go to the books of Moses. They say, listen, uh, teacher, we know that Moses, <laughs> who they love, right? Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What he's referring to there is something in the Old Testament that was uh, prescribed called Leverite marriage. And whether or not you remember what that is called is not important. Here's, here's the principle of it. What was so important to Israelite men and families in this culture was your family name. Your family name was a, uh, a way to show you belong to God's community, God's people. You were, you were blessed by God. So to have your name eliminated, in other words, if you didn't have offspring to carry on your name, you would be viewed as cursed by God, right? To be viewed as an outsider, so there was nothing more dreaded in this culture to have your name basically disappear because it wasn't carried on. And so what Moses and what God did through Moses was he said, I'm going to establish a, a practice that says if a man marries a wife and for some reason that man dies or passes on before they have children together, someone to bear the family name, then the brother of that uh, man steps into his place and he marries the wife to try to raise up offspring. So they continue that practice. We see that in a couple places in the Old Testament. But again, the idea of that is not, you're like, that just feels weird. But if you understood the, the priority of saving your family name in that culture, it would not be viewed as weird. It actually was viewed as heroic. It was actually viewed as very uh, uh, chivalry-like in that culture. So here's what the Sadducees do with this. They're like, let's take this and let's pose a hypothetical situation, right? Everybody loves a good hypothetical situation. And so they take a really extreme hypothetical situation and we'll say almost make it into a riddle. And so they pose a situation with Jesus. They say, let's, let's suppose that this man marries his wife and he dies before uh, is able to raise up offspring. Well, the second brother steps in and he does his duty to try to, to marry and to raise up offspring. But guess what? He dies as well. So what happens? The third steps in. Same fate. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Now, the real riddle in this is, what in the world is the woman doing to all these guys that is causing them all to die, right? Is it her cooking? I don't know. But, that's a joke, ladies. It's okay. You can laugh at that. I'm not serious. But <laughs> you got to be, be sweating it out if you're like the fourth or fifth brother, right? <laughs> you're like, uh, this is not looking too good for me. So, but their whole idea here is saying like, listen, let's suppose we get through all seven of those and then the lady dies at all of this. She didn't have children with any of them. So who's really her real husband in the resurrection, right? Because none of them were able to raise up children. So are all of them her husband? Well, that poses a moral dilemma because the Jews believed in monogamy. You can't be married to multiple people. But now we're in a really tricky situation because supposedly she was married to all these guys. You see here, it's, it's, it's just this really interesting situation that they pose to Jesus. And Jesus, I love this, for, for the Sadducees, this supposedly proved why resurrection was an issue. It, it posed a, a potential dilemma. But Jesus, on the other hand, says the real dilemma here 
The real dilemma is their lack of understanding and their lack of faith. Their lack of faith in the power of God, which does indeed raise people from the dead, as he talks about in verse 25. He says, listen, even when they rise from the dead, they're neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's a very interesting thing here, right? We're going to talk about this more at the end, but Jesus here is saying, listen, these boundaries of marriage that you're putting in place here, they don't even extend into heaven. So you're even you're you're naive to what God is able to do. Even then the resurrection is far more glorious than being defined or confined by marriage. In other words, you have too narrow a focus and too narrow limitations of what God and his power is able to do. But then he even adds to that by saying, likewise, you lack understanding because you don't know the scriptures. <laughs> It's funny because Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. And you're like, well, yeah, they don't accept the writings. They don't accept uh, the, the prophets. But Jesus is saying, listen, you only accept the first five books of the Moses. And you don't even understand those. He says, what about the passage about the burning bush? Where Moses encounters the burning bush. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, God doesn't make promises in this life that are only limited to this life. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the time that God is talking to Moses, they're dead. But notice that Jesus is referring to them in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I, I wasn't, you know, past tense the God of them. I am presently their God. You're mistaking. You, you have such a limited view of the power and the nature of God. And like that, like with the Pharisees, like with the Herodians, the Sadducees walk away embarrassed and ashamed because Jesus' wisdom outsmarts them as well. Very interesting ending to this section of the debate, right? We're going to see in the coming weeks that there's still going to be a little bit of some exchange going on here, but we're going to see Jesus start to take the offensive more than the defensive. And he's going to try to show them how their thinking on so many things continues to be foolish, limited, and how his wisdom is so much better. But you look at a story like this and you're like, okay, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Go Jesus, right? But, but what are like the takeaways for me from a story like this this morning? Well, Good news is I think there's, there's still a lot of really practical application for you this morning. So I'm going to breeze through these here. But here's some things that I would love for you to take away from this story this morning. The first of which is this. There is no fooling Jesus because he knows our hearts. There is no fooling Jesus because Jesus knows our hearts. That's implied in both his interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians as well as his interaction with the Sadducees in this story. Jesus knows when people are trying to trick him, but he also knows students when we are trying to fool him with our lives as well. Because like these religious leaders, we too can live as hypocrites. We can put on a good spiritual show on the outside while the inside remains unchanged. Students, Jesus knows your heart. I don't know if you've taken time to think about that lately, but Jesus knows your heart. 
And you need to be reminded this morning that though you may be able to fool your friends and your family into thinking you are something you are not, there is no fooling Jesus. So stop trying to trick him, right? Stop trying to put on a show as if you have it all together and you know the things that you need to know and you're this good spiritual emblem, right? Jesus knows your heart better than you do. Men have been trying for thousands of years and so far zero have been able to outsmart him. And guess what? You're no different. So stop trying to hide in the darkness and rather come into the light with Jesus and be honest and open with him and open with others. Secondly, God calls for us to submit to our governing authorities. Uh, There's many scriptures we could go to affirm this. This is not the main point, so we're not going to take long on this here. But Jesus' response uh, does not call for us, student, to rebel against government when we don't like it. Rather, it calls for us to submit even when it's hard. He says, pay your taxes, obey their laws, unless they are asking you to directly sin or disobey God, right? That is where that is limited within government. Government cannot tell you how to live your spiritual life. It is something that overlaps with that and violates what the scripture would call obedience and calls you to enter into sin. That is the limitation there. Too often, I think we're quick to, to say that the government's causing us to sin when the reality is the government just maybe asks us to do things that we just don't like or we prefer to do. And I understand this is actually unique when we think about our country because as a democracy, we're invited to speak to some degree into politics, right? This is different than the ancient world where it was a monarchy or a dictatorship, right? We live in a democracy where there is some level of voice that people have. And that's okay, but I would say use that privilege well and with integrity. But also remember this morning that no government has been put into place that God did not intend to be there. Again, government is an extension. God ordains governments. It is an extension of his authority on earth. Understand that there are corrupt governments, absolutely, but nothing is happening outside of God's plans. One final point on this. Always be quick to pray for governments rather than be quick to, to criticize. Next time you're tempted to say something bad about a politician or a policy, ask yourself this. Did you pray about them or pray for them first? Right? Our, our mindset changes a lot when we are quick to pray rather than be quick to criticize Thirdly, this is getting back to the point that we were talking about uh, with the, the coin. Since you, student, bear God's image, God deserves all of you. I don't think it's any uh, I don't think it's any surprise that Jesus uses this language here when he asks whose likeness or whose image and description is this, right? That's the very same language that you see all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And so what did God do? God created mankind in the image and likeness of himself. We are created as God's image bearers, his living representations of himself on this earth. So, 
Going back to Jesus' question, what do we render back to God that belongs to God? Answer? What? Ourselves. I promise that's not a trick question, right? If God has made us in his image and likeness, if we bear his image, then we render to God the things that belong to God, which would be ourselves. God made all of you, so he deserves all of you. He wants your life to be all about making his name great, not some political leader or, more likely, your own name great. So consider today, student, what you're giving back to God from your life. Do you only give when it's convenient or required of you? Saying, I'll give God my time and some of my energy on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, but really that's kind of the the boundaries on what I give to God. Or, maybe even more likely, are there certain parts of your life where you are committed to God while there are other parts that are what we would call off-limits to God? Say, I I really want to worship God, I want to give God my best until it comes to my entertainment choices, and then that's kind of a different animal. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's different. Or I'm really all about going to church and being a devoted Christian until it comes to dating relationships, and then I kind of just, you know, it's not important. I don't, I don't remember anything. I really love God, but uh, when it comes to obeying my parents, man, that's, that's really hard. I, I just don't know that I can do that. Student, if if you bear God's image, if God made all of you, then there is no part of your life that is off-limits to God and his authority over your life. According to Jesus, there are no areas of your life that are off-limits to him. He made all of you. He deserves all of you. And guess what? In two weeks, guess what he's going to tell you about? How he wants all of you. He's going to talk about the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. So yeah, Jesus Jesus knows where we're going here. He knows where we're going. Fourth, eternity is more glorious than we can even imagine. According to Jesus, here, this is interesting. Jesus says we are like the angels, but notice that Jesus doesn't say we become angels. Uh, that's kind of a mistake that we've had in our popular culture that thinks, oh, well, when we go to heaven, we just become angels. We, you know, float around on clouds and we play harps. Ugh, gross. I, no, like, we, notice he says we are not actually angels, which angels don't even do that, right? That's the funny thing. It's like, that's not even the way the Bible talks about angels now, right? But notice that we are just like them, he says, in that there are no marriage unions. Marriage is actually an institution reserved exclusively for this present world. And this is something that is kind of mind-blowing because people are like, so wait, there's no marriage in heaven? There's a yes and no answer to that, I would say. And that's hard to believe because those things are so cherished on this earth, right? If, if anybody has been married or desires to be married and they understand the, the, the intimacy and the, the love that comes with a, a spouse, it's hard for you to let go of those things because we love them so much on this earth. But those things pale in comparison to the glories that await us in heaven. One commentator that I read this week, he had this great quote. Listen, 
He said some people, influenced by popular culture, uh, by popular cultural depictions, fear heaven will be an endless bore of floating on clouds and playing harps. Yet the Bible teaches that the infinitely creative God of the universe, who has given us a glimpse of his creative genius in this marvelously diverse planet, is preparing something so much greater that our human mind cannot even fathom it. That doesn't sound boring at all, does it? Our ability to fully comprehend the glories of eternity is like telling a person who's only lived their life in Antarctica what Hawaii looks like. You're like, Hawaii? Oh, man, it's a land full of of tropical beaches. You're like, oh, we have beaches here. No, they have sand on them. What's sand? Oh, there's these palm trees. What are trees, right? Uh, The only way to describe it is like, You can because you have no perspective. It's so much more glorious than you can even realize now. But I said that it's a both and thing, right? I said that there is marriage and there isn't marriage in heaven. Because we must remember that we will be married in heaven. But our marriage is first and foremost to Christ. The scripture talks about how the church is the bride of Christ. The love that we experience in that relationship in heaven will far exceed anything that earthly marriage today can provide for us. And so that's a glorious truth. Fifth, Jesus invites us to know our Bibles well. This is a very straightforward point here. But notice Jesus' critique to to the Sadducees was kind of convicting to me this week. He says, you are wrong because you do not know the scriptures. And they only studied the first five books. They didn't even have 66 books. That's a hard critique straight from Jesus' mouth. And so as we start a new year, right, we're one week into the new year. New years are always great for resolutions and, and plans and trying to start new things. Student, resolve right now, this year, 2023, to know your Bibles better. To seek to know the Bible more. Last week, we had a great sermon on the priority of the scripture. We started as a church uh, entering into a Bible reading plan, right? The study guides that I just talked about here, tap into those things that seek to help you know the Bible more. At the same time, don't fall into the two ditches of surrender that say, well, we can't fully know God. There's no way to actually know everything in scripture. So therefore, I'm just going to seek to not know anything, right? I'm just going to... I can't know it, so I'm just not going to try, right? That's one ditch, but the other ditch says, I want to try to know everything about God, when the reality is you're not God, and you're not going to understand everything. And God's not calling you to understand everything. He's calling you to walk that middle line that says, hey, if I am worthy, if I am more glorious to you than anything, then seek to know me. And the more that you know me, the more joy you are going to find in your life, the more you are going to walk in my ways, and more you will cherish and treasure me. So student, seek to know your Bible well because you desire to know your God. These last two points will go quickly on here. The message of the resurrection is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? This truth comes to us from 1 Corinthians 1.18, right? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you or anyone close to you is struggling with any of the core concepts of the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, if those things are hard for them, if they are just foolishness and they don't understand, well, guess what? It's probably because they don't know the Lord. 
And the same was true for the Sadducees in the story. They don't truly know God. But for those of you who do believe, those of you who are trusting in those things, believe that they are a reality, particularly the truth about the resurrection, then for you this morning, in light of that resurrection hope, remain steadfast in this life. Remain steadfast in this life. This truth comes to us from 1 Corinthians as well, but at the end of the book, where Paul, after talking about the truths of the resurrection, he says this, in light of everything about the coming resurrection of all believers, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Translation, your life is not meaningless. It's not empty. If this truth about one day you will rise again to live with God forever is true, which it is, then man, live like there's no tomorrow, right? Remain steadfast in your faith. Go hard after the Lord. I'm actually excited for those of you going to Ascend Camp. We just learned this week that this theme verse and this theme of steadfast is our theme for camp this year, right? This is, this is going to be a cool reality that we get to, to tap into this summer, but don't wait until then, right? Soon, if you truly believe that this is true, then run faster for him than you ever have, knowing that your work in the Lord, everything you do for Jesus, is not a waste. It's not meaningless. But it is totally worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, and thank you for the time with our students. Thank you for their attention. And Lord, we just pray for your wisdom to help us know how to process all this, to know how to appropriately apply it. And again, Lord, help us to be people of integrity who are just open to you about our hearts, the ways that maybe we are not giving ourselves to you that we deserve or that you deserve. And uh, because you know our hearts, you already know the areas we struggle, the areas that we are weak. So Lord, help us to just be humble and open with you so that, Lord, we can be changed and we can grow and we can render to you uh, the worship and the lives that you deserve. For we are your image bearers and you deserve all of us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.